As you guys know, I like to tackle tough, difficult, uh, challenging, confusing issues oftentimes and dig deep for biblical clarity, like survey all of scripture, trying to pull together different elements, different verses that give us like something to hold on to. And then to compile all those things we can hold on to into like a comprehensive teaching on an issue. Well, the issue we're going to tackle today to do that with is what is the fate of people who die as infants? either infants, very young children, or people who are mentally handicapped. So that is to say they're mentally, they're the equivalent of an infant or a very young child. Can we say they go to heaven or hell or limbo uh, as the Catholic, uh, the, the traditional Catholic theology would be nowadays, limbo's in limbo, whether it's a thing or not uh, officially, uh, or is it some sort of reincarnation where they make a, let, a decision later on in some future life experience? Or are we just in the dark? Do we just throw our hands up in the air and say, we just don't know. We're just going to trust the Lord and we move on with life. Um, well, I think we can actually get some pretty strong answers. And I'm going to survey scripture today. But let me start by saying this. If you've lost a child and you're listening to this um, I want to say I, I can't I can't imagine and I don't intend to drag you through the mud. I'm not trying to pull your emotions around here. Um, I wouldn't want someone to do that to me if I were in your shoes. Um, I also want to ask for your grace towards me because um, I the scripture may not fall short, but I will fall short and I'm, I'm not going to even try to fix you or or poof, you're, you're better now. I don't think it works that way. I don't think that's how things function in life, especially with such terrible tragedies. Um, so. I want to give you solid answers, though. What sometimes people do, even pastors, sometimes is they they try to minister to the heart. When you're when you're at some point, you're asking the question of the head. What is in my in my head? Like as I analyze scripture, like what 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 is the result of the analysis? Like someone give me that, where they're not just trying to hold me with kid gloves, but they're trying to help me process what is the teaching of scripture on this topic. That's my goal today. I think that that will bring you more benefit. Than, um, than whatever poetry I could quote because I'm not so good at that anyway. So we want and we need scripture. And many people say the Bible's unclear on this topic, but I think it gives us um, so much to go on that we can r at least rule out. Uh, well, let me put it this way. I think these babies are in heaven. And I think I can build a strong biblical case that you will be with them again if you are in Christ, making your salvation your primary concern when it comes to seeing them again. So what happens uh, to people who die as infants or who die with severe mental impairments, at least some severe mental impairments. A lot of people will answer this question by saying, hey, God is good. God's going to do the right thing. God's going to do the best thing. That's what's going to happen. And I trust him. I trust God's character. And I want to say this. That is a good starting point and a good ending point. And if we have nothing to go on, that should be a good enough answer for us. Whether we like it or not, whether we get upset hearing that kind of answer is a second issue that has to do with our hearts. God's goodness is a perfectly good answer for the unknowns of my life and the tragedies of my heart and my life and the things I go through. That is a good and fully sufficient thing to, to land on. But in addition to that, I do think the Bible does give us a lot more to go on. But because these verses that that are are used are sometimes used like wrongly, I'm actually going to start this survey. And this can be a longer teaching video, I admit, ahead of time. Uh, I'm going to start the survey of scripture with five passages that I think we should not use to say that babies are in heaven. I think these five passages don't work that way. And I've heard them used. I've read a couple books on this topic in, in the past week, you know, and I've been studying a lot on the issue. I've been given it a lot of thought over the years as well. 
But I think these passages don't work. And even prominent pastors, I've heard use them, uh, people whose names you would know. And so here we go. We're going to start with that. What verses we don't want to use to answer this question. Then I'm going to survey a bunch of passages we will use to answer this question. I'll give you the conclusions at the end. And then I'm going to leave you hanging with a bunch of other questions because babies in heaven then leads to a bunch of other questions. And I'm going to answer those next week. Questions about free will, questions about sin nature, those types of issues. I'm going to deal with that next week. All right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. This is our first uh, verse we're going to dig into today. Never mind that I'm in Psalm 17, 9. Okay, hold on. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. This is one verse that's used. I'll read it to you and then I'll make the case as if I'm using this verse. And I won't use it. I'm going to say that we shouldn't use it for this purpose. But the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And so this is, is taken as a statement that, hey... Um, the kids of believers, if you're a Christian, then your kids are holy and that means that they are saved. So by virtue of having at least one Christian parent, then you've got saved children. That's, that's pretty much the whole case right there. Now I want to read this, this passage in context to show you that, that I don't think at all that you, I don't think it even could mean that. And I think it like provably doesn't mean that. So we're going to dig into it. Also, I think that it's problematic because if you're going to say only Christian kids uh, kids of Christian parents are saved. What are you saying about everybody else? Um, so, First Corinthians seven twelve it says, "But to the rest I say, not uh, uh, not the I." Let me start over. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So here, and by the way, I'm using the NASB for today's study, the whole Mark series. I'm using the NASB for consistency as far as Bible translation. Um, but here, verse 12 and 13 establishes this. This is about husbands and wives who are unequally yoked, a husband who's married to a, a non-Christian wife or vice versa, Christian woman married to a non-Christian man. And he's like, hey, stay together, stay together. And then he offers benefits of staying together in verse 14, 13 and 14. A woman who has an unbelieving husband, or excuse me, verse 14 and uh, through 16. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now here's what the first thing you need to know is the word sanctified here and sanctified here and holy here is all from the same Greek word hagias, which means holy. So what we're, what we're saying about the children, Paul is also saying about the husband. Whatever he means by sanctifying the husband, he means something very similar about the children. So if you're going to say that the children are therefore saved because they're called holy in this passage, and sometimes holy refers to people that are saved, but not always. If you're going to say they're saved because they're called hagias, uh, you know, a, a, uh, one of the terms that uses hagias as its root, then you have to say then the husband is also saved because it's the same in the Greek. It's the same uh, root. But in verse 16, that's refuted. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? So according to Paul, the salvation of the spouse is actually in question, right? They're not a believer yet. They might become a believer. So whatever sanctification is happening, it doesn't equal salvation. That's the point that I need to make here. So the same word is used for husbands being sanctified as children being holy. Same same word. And um, there's another issue there, which is if this was about salvation... <laughs> 
let's pretend that all that that wasn't the case for 16 didn't exist and we were like theorizing this was about salvation it would mean that the husband saved and the kids are saved as long as they're married to a a, a christian woman or a christian man you're 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 saved this causes a lot of problems right uh, but in addition to that it wouldn't mean that you're saved when you have a Christian parent because the context in 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul telling Christians not to divorce their unbelieving spouses. And the, the consequence of a divorce is your children are unclean. You get a divorce, your, your kids are unclean. Well, if you're saying that holy means they're saved, then you're saying that a Christian parent divorces their non-Christian spouse, kids are now going to hell. Right? This is not what he's talking about. Paul is not talking about this issue at all. He's like saying, look... Christians have a have a like salt and light impact on their families. A wife impacts her husband when she's a believer and she impacts her kids and it has a sanctifying effect upon them. And so does just a marriage being together. It has a sanctifying effect on the family. And divorce causes harm, causes hurt to the kids, causes a lack of, of relationship and connection, less salt and light into their lives. And that's all he's saying there. That's That's all that we're getting out of this passage. Um, yeah, so it's about the positive impact of a believer on their family. It's not about salvation of kids. It's not related to that. All right, the next passage is Jeremiah 1.5. Another passage I'm not going to use to support my views here. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, God speaking to Jeremiah, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, some say, you know, Jeremiah here is, it's being, sh it's being shown that he's saved. Jeremiah's saved and he's saved in the womb. Um, now, I don't know, this, this would give us something, right? Because if he is saved, then it's like, hey, at least you can be saved in the womb. It's possible. But the problem is that this is like a rare exception, right? This is special. Jeremiah, you're not like everybody else. I consecrated you to be a prophet to the nations, so Jeremiah is like, like he's seen like an exception, like a rare thing that God consecrates him for these exact purposes. So you're, it's a double-edged sword. If you're saying this shows that Jeremiah was saved and this is the basis on which infants are saved, then it's almost like you're saying only some special people are consecrated and saved from the womb. And I, I'm concerned with that view. I don't think it can, it's consistent with other scriptures that actually teach on this. But also this verse just isn't about salvation, I don't believe. Uh, God consecrated him. Right? He appointed him. So, so Jeremiah was, was set aside and destined, predestined by God for this ministry of, of being a prophet to the nations. And this is to encourage him. Right, Jeremiah, you're not just some random selection, man. I chose you for this. I chose you for this. Be encouraged. Have courage. That's Jeremiah 1. God's encouraging him to have courage because he's scared. He's scared of stepping into this uh, ministry that will be hostile. And it would be hostile. Jeremiah had a rough ministry. So I don't think that this verse gives us anything uh, in relation to the salvation of infants. Another passage is 1 Kings chapter 14. Put up verse 7 here. So this is about Jeroboam. Jeroboam is one of the kings of Israel. And it's said that all of his kids are going to be killed. Uh, his kids being his descendants, not his not his babies. That's not the... Well, I don't think we should get that out of this passage, but his descendants that would be in, he's the king, right? He would, they would be inheriting his uh, kingship, but God's cutting off his line and his descendants, when they die, they're all going to fail to be buried because basically they're all wicked. So they won't be buried. Now this is kind of like casting a, a, a shadow on their salvation. Their actual salvation seems to be in question because the symbol of you won't get buried is the, what's implied is you won't be resurrect in the, in the good resurrection. So there's one exception. 
Jeremiah's son, God says of Jeremiah's son, hey, there's something good in you. There's something good that God has found in his son. And so some say, well, this means that his son was saved and it's because his son was an infant that he was saved. So let's, that's the background of the passage. We're going to go ahead and read it now. Um, just preface before verse seven, before we get to this verse, Jeremiah finds out that his, his child, his son is sick and he sends his wife to the prophet in disguise to ask what will happen to my son. And so here's what happens. The prophet responds, says, go say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people, Israel, and, um, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant, David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which is right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, verse 10, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, all the potential future kings from his line both bond and free in Israel. And I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. So God, it's Jeroboam's disgusting to God. It's like getting sweeping poop away. You want to get it out of there. Verse 11, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. So they won't be buried. Get that? That's a really big deal to them. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat for the Lord has spoken. So they're cut off. They're cut off. This may again imply loss of ultimate final salvation that may be implied here. It's not super clear, but it seems likely. But there's an exception. Now you arise, go to your house, and when your feet enter the city, the child will die. But there's an exception. So the kid's going to die. The kid that's already sick, the child's going to die. It doesn't say that this is part of judgment or not. You might think it is. It's contextually perhaps. But verse 13, his death is different. All Israel shall mourn him and bury him. For he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave. And here's the key. Because in him, something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Okay, so there's the verse. And it's like, look, Jeroboam's whole family's wicked, but this, this child, this infant, there's something good in infants. And so even when there's wickedness in the family or wickedness of mankind, like God receives the child and his burial implies his future resurrection. If, if we can follow that implication through. And I think there is some consistency there. Here's where it falls apart, in my opinion. Um, well, I do think it implies salvation. But the passage doesn't give us any indication about how old this kid is. That's where we're making assumptions. And I, I, I like this. I'm like, ooh, this is a cool passage. I'd like to be able to use this. But there's nothing here to say that he wasn't a 15-year-old. There's no reason to think he wasn't. The only indication of the age of the boy is the terms used in Hebrew to describe him. Na'ar, which could be boy, lad, or youth. And it can be used of infants up to 17-year-olds. Like, right? You could use it for this whole range. And it is used for that whole range. Yeled is the other term in the Hebrew. And it's often used of very young children. It is often. But it's also used of young men as well. Young young men, right? Men who could produce babies of their own. They're, they're that old. And so we just don't have... Um, enough data to like say this is about an infant and so I, I have to set this passage aside as like indeterminate you might say um, but yeah it doesn't seem to work there's also a Jewish tradition and it is a tradition is it accurate I have no idea and the Jewish tradition says that that this child of, of Jeroboam Abijah he actually um, was helping people 
against his father's wishes, he was helping people and doing godly deeds in the land of Israel and, and in Jerusalem. And that's why God honored him. And so at least in Jewish tradition, they think of him as an older son. All right, let's do um, another passage. And this one is about where Jesus says children have angels, or at least that's how it's interpreted. So the logic goes like this. Uh, children have angels, and angels are specifically assigned to the saved. So the implication is kids are saved. So here we are, Matthew 18, 10. It says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And by the way, side note, I should have mentioned this earlier. This is the Mark series, part 35. I've got like links to the to the whole playlist for the Mark series. You're like, Mike, you haven't even been at Mark yet. This is true. But in the Mark series, I do these theological detours occasionally where we hit a passage, in this case, Mark chapter 10, verse like 13 through 16 is where we're at today. And as I read this passage and it brings up Jesus receiving children, this is one of those texts that weighs in on the question of infant salvation. So I decided to tackle the topic of infant salvation and produce this topical video that will be sandwiched in the middle of our Mark series. So here we go. Jesus says, do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you, their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, the way you use this verse, you couple Matthew 18, 10 with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, which says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So if the purpose of angels is to minister to those who will be saved, then babies having their own angels means that babies will be saved. I mean, that logic works. The logic works. Um, I don't know how ironclad it is, but at least at least there's a reason given there. Here's where I think this doesn't work, though. When you go back to Matthew 18 and you look at it in context, right? I, I want to say babies go to heaven just like you'd probably do too. But I want to have biblical reasons for it, right? And here in context, it's not what this passage is talking about. Matthew 18, verse 2, it says, He called a child to himself and set him before them, Jesus. And he uses this kid as an illustration. It says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now here's a question. When Jesus is talking about children here in verse 5, does he mean literal children? Or does he mean people who've humbled themselves like children? Well, I think he makes it even more clear as we go on. So let's read. But whoever causes one of these little ones, those would be the children, right? And he qualifies it. Who believe in me? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a mil uh, heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He gets the millstone award. You mess with the little ones. Except the little ones in verse 6 are Christians who believe in him. They're, belie they're not infants, in other words. They can't be infants because they have... A, a present state of belief in Jesus. So they're believers, adults, or those who are of age who believe in Jesus. They're like children. They're his little ones. So then when you get down to verse 10, Matthew 18, 10, Jesus is saying, don't despise one of these little ones. These are saved believers in Matthew 18, 10. The illustration of a child, yes, but the application of saved Christians. So I can't use this one. And I don't think that that... Uh, that one works. Um, this text does give us something though. We're not like without any <clears throat> sort of help moving forward with the text because by using children as an example of how we must come to Jesus for salvation, it at least adds favor to the idea that children are welcomed into God's presence at death. Why? Well, why would you use people who are rejected by God as your example 
of people that will be received by God, right? That does seem strange. So at least there's something there. And um, I think our last passage is Ezekiel 16, 20 and through 22. And uh, this was a, a popular passage. I, I got excited when I heard about someone say that. I was like, where is that in the Bible? And as I went to double check the context, which you should always do, I went, oh, I don't think that's saying what they think it's saying. Well, it goes like this. Um, God says, moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you'd born to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols, causing them to pass through the fire. So God calls these um, children, and here's how I've heard it said in a couple different sources. Um, children of pagans, God calls them my children. They're my children. And so God lays claim over all children everywhere around the world. And I think the pr there's a problem with this. Um, there are other reasons why God calls them my children that may not have to do with their salvation. I think they're saved. I think I'm going to build a case for that. I just don't think this verse gives us that. So in Ezekiel 16, if you read the whole chapter, you can check out the whole chapter yourself. Um, look, I highlighted something. What was that? Oh, that was for a different issue. Um, if you look at Ezekiel 16, the whole chapter, you're going to see that it's about God's relationship with Jerusalem as though Jerusalem is his girl. Jerusalem is his woman, is his bride. And he raises her up out of the dirt, out of the filth, out of her blood. And he draws her to himself. And then... What does she do? Now, this is an allegory of Jerusalem, the people, right? What does she do? She takes the kids that, according to Ezekiel 16, 20, that she bore to him, the sons and daughters whom you'd born to me. Well, in the analogy of Ezekiel 16, God is the husband. They're the bride. And so the kids belong to him too. And he says, you sacrificed them. They were my children. And so the, the my children is specifically, this is important. I hope you follow with me on this. Uh, the my children claim is about them being in the covenant or in the relationship with God that Israel had with God. Now, I have two problems with this. One, if that's the case, then it would only mean salvation for kids when they're part of Israel. And Romans makes it very clear that this is not the case, right? Because it's children of promise, right? That are that are counted as the true children. But also, God has plenty of, of salvation accessible and available to all people. He does a work through Israel, but this my children thing isn't about salvation. And um, the other issue with it is that um, um, there are specific examples of children of Israel who were not saved. So we, even in Romans as well, of those who were of the children of Israel, they're still called the children, the descendants of Israel, but they're not actually saved. So... Yeah, the case four is, yeah, God calls them my children and their children ultimately of pagans because they're not really pagan. I mean, they're pagan in practice, but they're actually descendants of Israel, so it's a little bit muddy. But there's other reasons why God calls them children. Also, um, there's other reasons in Scripture where God lays special claim onto the kids of the descendants of Israel. So in Exodus 22, 29, in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, God claims the firstborn sons of Israel as they belong to him personally. And this has to do with Passover and all those other issues. So it's hard to say that's a claim that applies to every kid everywhere. Seems unique to Israel. In uh, in scripture, when God calls the children of Abraham, my people, it never means that they're saved. Right? So we, we shouldn't take this my children thing and say, therefore, they're saved because of that. There's other reasons, but not that one. So the passage doesn't show that children who die are saved. It does give us something else, though. 
it does show us that God has special concern for children, even when their parents are disgustingly, horribly wicked. That's important. Because one view I will, I will absolutely fight against is the idea that if your parents are godly, you're going to be saved. And if your parents are ungodly, you're going to be damned. I think there's lots of scripture to refute that. Here's one of those verses that pushes against that view. All right, now we're going to build our theology. Those are our five passages that we're not going to use to support our doctrine, or at least I'm, I'm, the, the thing I'm trying to convince you of here, my, my understanding. Uh, we're going to build our theology, but we're going to back up. We're not going to start from verses that talk about specific individual kids. We're going to talk about scriptures that talk about the state of children in general. And by children, I don't mean of all ages. Certain kids that are very young that fall into this category that you're about to see. So the first point I want to make is this, and it's answering this question. Are kids responsible for any sin whatsoever? Does God hold them responsible for sin? Not do you want him to, or should he, or shouldn't he? What does the Bible actually say about this issue? So we know that he holds us responsible for the sins we commit, but I'm going to suggest it's totally different with children. God refers to children as innocents, yeah, but he doesn't just mean innocent of certain crimes. They're innocent in a unique fashion, in a unique way. So the biblical teaching is that children are in a unique state, and hear this word carefully, of moral incapability or moral incapacity, and that that changes how God deals with them when it comes to judgment. So here we go. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31. Deuteronomy 131, it says, and in the wilderness, oh, by the way, I'll back up and tell you. So in this passage, God is dealing with the children of Israel that they've, they're walking up to the edge of the promised land. There's like, there's giants in the land. We don't want to go in. You brought, out here to, you brought us here to kill us, God. You want to get our kids killed. And so God's going to have that whole generation die. And he's going to bring the next generation into the land 40 years later, if you're familiar with the story. So Deuteronomy 131, judging the older generation, Look what he says about the younger generation. He says, And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. That is not the right verse, but it's still a good verse. I wanted verse 39. All right. Moreover, your little ones who you said would become prey and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there. They'll enter the land and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. Look at what God says, not as a statement about one, uh, oh, what's going on with my camera connection? That's not ever happened before. All right. I think it was just the connection. I just have to not breathe. Okay. <laughs> just hope it'll be okay. Um, you still hear me there? Okay. I'm good. All right. Look at what God says. Now, this is su supremely profound. He describes not one kid, not one individual like Jeremiah or somebody like that, but rather it's a blanket statement about the nature of kids. They have no knowledge of good or evil. Consider this in light of the fact that the same author who wrote Genesis wrote this down. And in Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet here's children. They have no knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm going to argue they still have a sin nature, but they don't have a knowledge of good and evil, and it changes God's posture and judgment toward them. This is really significant. They're not morally perfect. They're morally unaware. They're morally unaccountable. You see, they're different than adults or, or people who are past some point of accountability who have now knowledge of good and evil. They're, you're past that point. That's a different scenario than the kids who are before that point. 
this is uh, so much of the theology is going to hang on the understanding this point. So let me support that with another scripture that shows that this is just the normal way of thinking about kids. It's not a, a one specific kid. It's just the way kids are. And the Bible knows it. And you know it too, right? You know infants don't understand. Three-month-old baby doesn't understand the moral dilemma of Cory Ten Boom, whether she lies to the Nazis about the Jews hiding in her place or not. Like, like there's no knowledge of good and evil. They don't even know language. So Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So Isaiah 7 here is, it's, it's, I consider this like a, a, a double prophecy when you couple it with Isaiah 8 and 9. But it's talking about, ultimately about the Messiah, but it's also referring to Isaiah's kid. And Isaiah's kid, look at what it said. Now, whether you agree with me that on that or not, it's irrelevant. But verse 16, it's just assumed that everybody understands that there's this stage of life where Isaiah's boy doesn't even know enough to refuse evil and choose good. There's no awareness that's there. There's no culpability then because there is no capability. That's the point. There is a temporary state that every human being goes through where they just don't know right from wrong. Like legitimately don't know. I'm not talking about a psychopath who is has, a, has awareness of right and wrong, but doesn't, doesn't care, doesn't feel a conviction about it or something like that. At least that's my understanding of it. Um, I'm not talking about a, a hardened conscience who is who was at one time aware of right and wrong, but through repeated sin is no is now clueless. Like they're actually drawn into sin uh, without real awareness. Like they've entered into darkness as judgment on them. No, no, we're talking about kids that just aren't morally aware yet. They're not sinless. They're just like not pure, perfect, and holy. Like everything they do is right. They're just like there just isn't really a moral rightness and wrongness to their actions because they're not morally aware. How does this play out then? Let's take this principle about kids. All kids are like this. How does it play out in judgment? So we can see how God deals with kids or wants to deal with kids, what his posture is, his heart is towards kids who are in this place of not knowing right from wrong. Well, in the story of Jonah, in the book of Jonah, when he goes to Nineveh, Jonah wants Nineveh to be destroyed. He's a prophet who's preaching to them, but he wants them to be destroyed. He wants God's wrath upon them. God wants to rescue them, so he warns them first, gives them an opportunity to repent. At the end of the book, God is trying to reason with Jonah about why he should also want Nineveh to be saved. And he gives him two reasons, both which are not really culturally that significant back at the time, but biblically in our Christian worldview, they're very significant. It's kind of out of nowhere for God to do these two things, especially the second one. But he says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand. So the first thing he says is, is Jonah, they deserve judgment, but I want to have mercy on them, even just for the sake of the children. Because the children are perfect and holy? No, he doesn't say they're holy. He says they don't know they don't know the difference between right and wrong. This is huge. Now I'll mention the second one just for those of you who care. Um, as well as many animals. God cares about animals? He he he'll he'll judge. There'll be collateral damage in judgment, yes, but he doesn't want to do that. He wants to give man an opportunity to repent. Um, and this also means kids are what? If if kids suffer in God's judgment, they're the collateral damage. They're not the targets. They're the collateral damage of the sin and the consequences of the sin of man. That's a pretty big deal. We should understand this. It should seem obvious. I just like having scripture that also supports this as well. So if they shouldn't be killed in Nineveh, these kids, 
why not? God doesn't want them to die. What's what's the reasoning here? Well, it's it's not because they're holy, right? It's because they're ignorant. They're just not accountable for anything yet. And so God wants to not have that fall upon them. It's not a good thing to do. It's not something he desires. And if it was just all kids, it wouldn't happen. It's a result of collateral damage of judgment, community judgment that God brings. Um, so God's judgment on adults impacts children. And we see this all the time. But the judgment itself is not on the kids. That's a consistent thing I think we should see in scripture. I think we should see that. And if we see kids as welcomed into God's presence upon their death, then we see that what God did was he delivered them into his own glorious presence, even though they went through a short period of suffering as part of the consequences of somebody else's sin. And that's how I would couch and understand the flood or God's uh, larger judgments on, say, the land of Canaan or something like that, even though people overstate what those were. Here's another note. Another note we get from Nineveh. Wicked, evil, unsaved parents who literally deserve to die for their sins, like early judgment, not even God waiting for them to die to judgment, but like he's going to smash Nineveh. Those kinds of parents, God still wants to have compassion on their kids. The parents were guilty and deserving of judgment. The kids were not guilty of it, and they did not deserve this judgment. That's pretty significant. Notice this too, if I can back up now to the, to the Deuteronomy 1 passage, because this is similar in Deuteronomy 1. Right? In Deuteronomy 1.39, we read that, the, that God speaks of the kids as having no knowledge of good and evil. But look at what he says about the parents, these same parents. He says, not one of this evil generation shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. So the parents are terribly wicked. The kids, God sees them totally differently. They're in a different category when it comes to judgment. They have no knowledge of good and evil. They have no awareness of right and wrong. Now, there's another passage that supports this as well. So I'm here saying you, you, you shouldn't say the kids go wherever the parents would go. Um, that That's not right. Ezekiel 18.20. Then teach them this. Um, hold on. Oh, I went to Exodus. I'm like, what? That's not what it's supposed to say. There we go. Uh, Ezekiel 18.20. It says the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteousness will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And so each one's accountable for their own issues. Now this starts to make it hard to say that kids are getting judged, right? Because they have no accountability for their parents' issues and they have no awareness, moral awareness. So they just, judgment doesn't seem to apply to them. And I'm going to argue that even more strongly in a minute. Let's though take this because some people would say, Mike, there's a um, there's a con contrary verse. There's a verse that contradicts what you're saying here, Mike, that kids don't suffer punishment for their parents' sins. I would actually argue um, they don't, but here's the verse that someone would use to argue against me, I think. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Uh, now, some people say, well, it's only of those who hate me. So the iniquity of the father will only be upon them if you continue hating God in those subsequent generations. That may be the case, but there's another scripture that seems to say the same thing without that caveat of, of those who hate me. Um, I will say this, though, that visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children is not the same as punishing the children for the sins of the father. There's a difference. Again, their kids here are collateral damage. They dam they're, they're hurt, suffering as a result of the parents' sins but aren't being punished and certainly not eternally for sins they committed. Let me give you an example. 
let's say that a dad, he has three kids, he's got a wife, um, and he goes out and robs banks and he, and he mugs people and does all sorts of sinful things. And then he gets caught and the government punishes him by putting him into prison and by putting a lien on his house and funneling all of his money to the people that he had stolen from. The kids will suffer greatly, but nobody thinks they're actually being punished, but the iniquity of the father is now visited upon them. So this warning is to parents that their sins will hurt their kids. That would be how I understand it. And then the point here, of course, is that God shows loving kindness to thousands, that his loving kindness is that much greater and that much more uh, overwhelming than even judgment and punishment and suffering. And so, yeah, that's how I would respond to that. Um, so we've got two things so far, two things so far. And the two things are this one uh, children are in a unique state of not knowing right from wrong, not having the knowledge of good and evil, which is the very thing that Adam and Eve certainly had after they ate of the tree. They don't have it yet. They will develop it naturally over time. So they don't have the knowledge of good and evil. And then two, this means that they are not yet personally accountable because of that lack of knowledge. They're not accountable. If they grow older, they will all sin eventually. And then they, then they are accountable. So this is, this is a, a stage of accountability. Um, I won't use the term age typically because the age would be different for every person since it's based on knowledge, not on age, right? It's based on awareness, not on how long you've been outside the womb. And so it would be different for each person. People develop at different rates. Anybody with multiple kids knows this. People mature at different rates. Like I was like super slow, you know, and, uh, and so, you know, that's just what happens in life where we mature at different rates. Some people might have a mental impairment that actually has them effectively like a little child. And the Lord knows exactly how much they know, and he will only hold them accountable if they, in fact, can rightly be held accountable. So let's build on this, though. I think there's more that I can say. So I, so perhaps stage of accountability or time entering into a, 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 um, a, a state of accountability might be the better way of understanding it. Although age of accountability, no one will ever stop saying it because we've all been saying it for so long. So we're going to build on this. We're going we're gonna to go further with our theology here. Um, we're going to look, we've looked now at um, the nature of kids. They don't know right from wrong and how God, when he's judging even communities of people, he doesn't put that on the kids. That's pretty significant, right? Because that, we're now going to apply it to salvation. Now we're going to build on this by looking at how people are condemned by God eternally, how eternal damnation happens in the Bible. And I want to show you that this just cannot apply to kids. I'm going to say, whatever your answer for kids is, it can't be hell. Um, it just doesn't work. I think that, that we can say this very strongly in scripture. So here we go. I'm not yet arguing that babies go to heaven, although I will argue that. Right now I'm just saying you can't put them in hell. <laughs> That's my answer. So Augustine was wrong. Um, all right, because the uh, conditions, the conditions, the things that cause people to go to hell, the reasons people go to hell, they just cannot apply to kids. And you may have, you, you're probably already ahead of me, but but it's still important that we build the case. So let me give it to you, although many of you are, are probably already there. So in Romans 1 through 3, what we have is like a indictment against humanity. Humanity is, is, is told of their like universal condemnation before God that we're all, we all sin and fall short. But if you read Romans one through three, you'll notice that everything it says just doesn't apply to babies. It doesn't apply to babies. It gets silly when you try to apply it to babies, right? Are, are babies idolaters? Is this a sin that babies have committed? I mean, as Romans one rips into idolatry. Well, in verses 18 through 21, we get this. 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, I mean, try to read that applying it to a baby, right? Are babies suppressing the truth? I mean, they're just unaware of anything. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. So there, there's knowledge, right? One of the reasons the wrath of God falls is knowledge. What is it that babies don't have? Knowledge, right? Knowledge of good and evil. They just aren't aware of it. Verse 20, condemnation on all men who are accountable. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. We're without excuse because we observe and see that God is real just by looking around. The creation screams out that there's a God. But if you're telling me a baby that is at six months gestation is supposed to be seeing the clouds and stars and sky and creation and be dwelling upon their own consciousness and be like, yes, there's definitely got to be an unmoved mover. You know, like if this is what they're supposed to do, then yeah, this it, you see this just doesn't apply. We go on. It says, for even though they knew God, but we, these kids don't know anything. They don't know the right hand from their left, let alone God, according to the Old Testament. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. I mean, it's not like babies are going to be accountable for not giving thanks. They can't speak. <laughs> they can't give anything. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. I never heard a baby profess to be wise. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, incorruptible God for an image of in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footing animals and crawling creatures. Do you see that this is obviously about uh, those who are past that age of accountability or stage of accountability? It, it, it has to be. This is the nature of the condemnation. When we get to verse 32, it continues, the condemnation that goes on man. It says, And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, what is it the babies don't know? The knowledge of good and evil? What is the condemnation? That man knows right from wrong. And what does the man do? He does what's wrong. And he gives hearty approval to others who do what's wrong. So the three things a baby aren't doing. Baby doesn't know right from wrong. Baby isn't doing right and wrong. And baby's not you know, approving of people doing right and wrong. It, the baby's not like, all right, good job, punch him again. Like this, you, you, yeah, infants certainly aren't doing this. Certainly aren't doing this. Um... Yeah, they have no knowledge of good or evil. Deuteronomy 1, that's the verse that I would want to point you for. Um, okay, so G Jesus also, he emphasizes this idea that, that lack of knowledge gives excuse or less judgment in the case of babies, no knowledge, no judgment, I think. John 15, 22, if I had not come to and spoken to them, they would have no, or would not have sin. I'm, I think I'm reading King James, New King James in my head here. Uh, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So Jesus is saying of the people, you know, before you met me, the Messiah, before you encountered me, you wouldn't have been accountable for rejecting me, but you've encountered me, you've rejected me. Now your sin is worse. Now they already had other sins. It's not like they'd have no sin at all. They just wouldn't have the sin of, of deliberately, openly rejecting the Messiah when he showed himself to them with miracles, which is pretty serious sin. Also, um, so babies, obviously, they're... I, Jesus wasn't speaking to a crowd thinking, and your infants too, right? Like this, they're just not considered as part of the group. In Romans chapter two, we have more information about how men are judged. And this just doesn't apply to babies. Romans two verses one and two. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. Do babies pass judgment? Not, no, a two month old, not passing judgment. Just passing gas a lot, but not judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. 
For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice the same things. So you know right from wrong, you do wrong. Judgment is upon you, and rightly so. But if that's what makes right judgment, then what could possibly justify judgment when you don't know right from wrong and you don't do anything right or wrong? It doesn't make sense. And I don't think it, we're, I don't think we're supposed to apply these things to infants because they don't apply. Now let's look at Revelation 20. Revelation 20, so, I'm, so I, okay, let me just back us up. I show that they don't have knowledge of good or evil, that God wants to pass over them, that the judgment of the parents doesn't apply to the kids, not in a punishment sense that would require hell. Um, I also showed from the New Testament that the grounds the Bible gives for why men are judged don't apply to babies. And now I want to show you in Revelation 20, in the actual judgment day, in the throne of judgment, where men are brought and sent to hell, the second death, this description of how the judgment works, it clearly is not involving babies. So Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 12 through 15. So here's, here's the account of this future judgment. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And great and small doesn't mean old, pe big, giant people and infants, right? It's talking about important people and lowly people. Uh, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. What are they judged by? Their deeds. According to their deeds. Babies don't have deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. We get that again. Then verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see that God's judging people for their works and their deeds. This is the very, their knowledge and their sins. These are the two things that kids, little babies certainly don't have. What am I saying? My big conclusion that I think everyone who believes the Bible should agree with me here. Babies aren't going to hell. Whatever you want to do with them, they're not going to hell. Because all of the reasons one goes to hell that are given in scripture as the, this is the cause, this is how the judgment takes place, it just doesn't apply to them. And to suggest that their parents or that someone else's sin is retroactively put upon them, I don't think that that works either for those same verses that I brought. Now, some would suggest limbo or some other location for babies. I'm going to try to give you guys a argument for why they should be going to heaven. Not just not going to hell, but actually going to heaven. So this is now adding onto our sort of wealth of knowledge we have. We have a lot of good, good things to see. Look at God's heart towards them. He wants to bring them into the land. These are all like implications that would be consistent with heaven. But I think we have even more. So let's go to the passage that everyone's been thinking about since you clicked on this video. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. 2 Samuel 12, 19. This is about David. Here's the background. Short summary, because you probably know the story. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He kills her husband to cover up the adultery, but it doesn't really cover it up. And he, you know, everybody knows. And he takes her back into uh, his house. And now it's just this horrible thing that this king chosen by God has done and ultimately blasphemed the name of God in front of everybody. And he's supposed to be King David. You know what I mean? He's the guy. And he does this thing. And so the child gets sick and God's judgment on David, not the baby, is that the baby's going to die. This is a collateral damage type scenario in my opinion. So David and Bathsheba, 
that scenario, the child's going to die. And David is fasting. He's fasting and fasting and fasting. In fact, he's fasting so much that when the baby dies, they're scared to tell him. His servants know the baby's dead. And they're like, how can we tell him that the child's dead since he might do something to himself? He might hurt himself. He might do himself harm. David might kill himself. Like, in other words, David really cares about this son. This is not like something he doesn't care. He's deep. He's a deeply emotional guy. We know from reading the Psalms and reading even uh, first or Second Samuel in particular. We we see that his heart. But look what happens when the child dies. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, "Is the child dead?" And they said, "He is dead." Notice this: the repetition, dead. Right, the, over and over again. Um, the servants today were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. And then we get this, um, how can we tell him that the child is dead? Repeated again. And then we get it like, what, three times in the next verse? In verse 19, David saw that he perceived that the child was dead. And he says, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Why is it being repeated over and over again? The repetition, especially in Hebrew writing and stuff. We're, we're, I think it's trying to get your heart to sink with David's. The sorrow, the sadness, the heaviness of it. The child is dead. I think God knows how much this hurts people. And he wants us to feel some of that. So then we'll see the oddness of what David does and we can learn from it. So David arose from the ground and washed, anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. David goes and he worships God. Like, Just imagine being a parent who's just lost your kid. You were fasting and praying. In his case, he knows it's because of his sin, right? At least he has an explanation for it, even though most times parents probably don't have any explanation. But he goes into the house of God and he worships God. And then they're just like puzzled. Like, what on earth is going on? So they then he came to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he eats. So he's not mourning, apparently. He's not fasting. He's worshiping and he's eating. What's going on? The servants trip out. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? While the child was alive... You fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? There's a word to some people who are trying to resurrect babies right now. Um, Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. But he will not return to me. And these little words right here. I will go to him. That is the big explanation. Why does David stop fasting? Why is he now worshiping God? Why is he now eating? I think the explanation is he believes he will see his baby again. He believes he will see his baby again. David fasted and wept for the child. His servants feared he might hurt himself. He was so despondent. The point here is David looks forward to a day when he will be with his son again. If that's not a case for the salvation of infants in general, I don't know how else to interpret it. And I, I mean that legitimately. Like I have other interpretations I've heard and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll share, with, share a couple with you and I think they fail. So um, the the statement, and I'll be with him, uh, David, you know, he knows he's going to be with the Lord. As we read in the Psalms, right? He's talking about, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He, he's He's got that expectation. Now, some people say, uh, David didn't really speak of heaven. He's just talking about Sheol in the sense of everyone who goes to the grave. They all go to the grave. And he's just like, we're going to go to the grave. But there's no comfort in, I mean, what's the comfort here? 
I can't bring him back to me, but I can die. Like, that's the big payoff moment. That's the big comfort. That's why he's cleaned his face and washed and worshipped God. It's because he's like, well, I can die. It's just fatalism. That's his whole thing. No, that's not the case. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. If people think that David is just talking about the grave, David's just talking about something other than actually fellowshipping with his son in the future, seeing him again, then I think that, and let me say this, you're an egghead and you're emotionally unaware. This is a father who just lost his son. And he says, I will go to be with him. And you're like, well, you know, historically, I think he was probably talking about Sheol. And he probably didn't really think anything about the afterlife. Because nobody thought about the afterlife. Because I have some historical reason for thinking this. And I'm just like, first off, I think you're wrong. I think those theories that the Jews didn't think about the afterlife, didn't, didn't believe in it until later times, I think that's just wrong-headed. Uh, I think that we have a lot of scripture that shows that that's wrong. That's a video for another day. But yeah, um, you've got to... Be emotionally unaware to think that this verse isn't intended by God to comfort parents who lose kids. What else could it be? It's not a coincidence. To think of a parent saying this and not meaning a real future relationship with their deceased child in the afterlife is to just be of low emotional intelligence. <laughs> just put it to you guys, frankly. Um, I think the scripture is meant for us. It's meant for to encourage our hearts. So, yeah. Um, let's compare it to what David said about Absalom just six chapters later, 2 Samuel chapter 18. David, his son Absalom, another son dies, and he is not okay with it this time. He doesn't just get up and wash his face and get back to life. He's not okay at all. When his son dies, look at what he says in 2 Samuel 18, 33, just six chapters later. So it's the same book. It's, I mean, here's the death of a son. Same guy loses two sons in two different scenarios, responds very differently. This is all deliberate by God. He sa It says, The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son. My son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And his heart is breaking because he's lost his son and his son was a terrible guy. He doesn't have hope for the future of Absalom. It's not just the loss of a life. I think it's his fear about the future of Absalom. He died in rebellion and wickedness and sin. The contrast is impressive. For the infant, there is comfort. For the rebellious son, there is not. This is pretty powerful stuff. And I do think this gives us a really strong reason to support uh, infant salvation, fellowship with them in heaven. Even if David is referring to a temporary uh, going to Sheol, but being in a saved location, like Jesus talked about with uh, Lazarus and the rich man, he's thinking, you're with me and Lazarus. Lazarus, right? Like, you're not over there. I'm not going to be with you in the sense of, oh, you're across the chasm far away and suffering. No, 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 you're with me. So that he would still be ultimately in heaven. And now that Jesus is resurrected, um, we're going to be with him. And so I believe children go instantly to be with the Lord. So how does this interplay with sin nature? Aren't we condemned when born? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to dig into that next week. That's going to be something I cover next week. But what we're seeing so far is we have an age or rather a stage, better word stage or time of accountability. Um, the age will be different for everybody. And for some people they may never reach that age, regardless of how old they are, right? Because it's about knowledge of, you know, capability mentally and, and comprehension of moral things before accountability of moral things. 
it's then based upon individual moral, moral knowledge and acts. And so it would apply to children. It would apply to some mentally disabled people. Which ones? I don't know how to draw that line. I mean, God knows the hearts of man. He knows their thoughts. This line's easy for him to draw. Difficult for me. There's a few other texts I want to bring in, though, before we call it a day. I know, this, like I said, it's going to be a little bit of a longer study. But because I'm covering one topic somewhat comprehensively, I want to bring all that I, got, all that I can on it. And I think that it will be fruitful. Uh, let me know what you think. So Mark chapter 10, here we are in our Mark series, part 35, and here we are, Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 16. This is the passage that launched us into this study. So Jesus blesses the children here, and it says in verse 13, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. So don't don't be bringing your kids to Jesus, he doesn't have time for them. That's actually kind of typical back then. There's hardly even any writing about kids from the first century because they just weren't even thought about or talked about. This is very like not first century what Jesus does here. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And that's the, first, the only time that word is used of Jesus. Indignant. He is very upset, very bothered by this, them refusing the kids to come to him and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus takes them in his arms, puts his hands on them and blesses them. Blesses them. So first question we want to ask is this. How old are these kids? Is it, Are these infants? Are there infants present in this blessing? And um, yes, there clearly are. Uh, Luke 18, 15 weighs in on this because it's a parallel passage. So it's of the same event. And it says here, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that they would touch him. But when the disciples saw it, they began to rebuke them. And he says, permit the children to come. It's exactly the same event. Except Luke uses the term um, brephos, which means infants. It's only used of infants. So it has to be infants. Also, the word pideon is used, and that could refer to infants all the way up to 12-year-olds. So that could be a variety of ages. What we know from Luke, is, and he highlights this, is even the infants were coming to him. And they weren't looking. It's not like they lived in a culture where every time someone shows you an infant, you had to say how cute it was, right? Like they're just not living in that kind of like culture. Infants are just like not useful yet right? They matter to you, to your family and your kids and your cult and your community or whatever, but they're just not useful. They don't have any participation in society. So there's, there aren't cartoons made for kids. There aren't special um, advertisements, advertisements for kids. Uh, parents don't spend their time watching kids' cartoons because they revolve all the entertainment of the home around the children. Like that's just not what was going on back then. So it's significant that he takes them in his arms and blesses them. And we get that also in the Mark passage, Implication that they're very young because he's able to take them in his arms. So he's able to pick them up and carry them and bless them. So definitely infants were involved in this. Now, some actually say this Mark passage, this is a a more Catholic position, um, but Lutheran as as well, or people who insist on infant baptism, they'll say this is a baptism passage. Now, if you're not already of that stripe who think that, you're probably like, wait, what? How is this a baptism passage? This passage has nothing to do with baptism. There's nothing of baptism in it. If anything, it's evidence of babies coming to Jesus without baptism. Um, now, some will say, and there's a one scholar named Jeremiah who actually says that the term hinder, do not 
hinder them is a technical term referring to baptism. I remember hearing this years ago and I was like, what? Like It just strikes you as like, what? And you get suspicious. Well, don't let people pull the Greek over your eyes. <laughs> this is not true. Um, the term kaluane uh, is used here in the Greek and it is used 23 times in the New Testament and rarely refers to baptism. It's not a technical term that just automatically means baptism. If water is not present, it's not talking about baptism. That's basically how it works. So this passage is actually really against infant baptism, or at least it leans that way because they're received with no indication of baptism. No repentance, no knowledge of good and evil. Jesus just welcomes these infants with a blessing, puts his hands on them, blesses them. He was indignant at the idea that people wouldn't let these kids come to Jesus. And I do think that this seems like a parallel to them coming to him in heaven. It does seem that way. I don't think the verse alone proves it, but along with all the other scripture I've got, I think that this adds a pretty strong element to that. He says that the kingdom of God to belongs, belongs to such as these. And yes, he's using them as a metaphor, but at least it makes you wonder, how can they be examples of the saved if them in their current state are rejected by God and not embraced into his presence if they die? It doesn't really make them a very good example of, saved, of being saved. It doesn't seem as consistent. It seems more consistent with them being saved than them not or going to limbo or some other location lesser than uh, lesser than heaven. And now old Catholic teaching said limbo was actually in hell. It was a place in hell. And then newer Catholic teaching is you don't have to have hold the limbo. It's kind of in limbo, whether it's real or not. But a lot of them, if they do hold it, will try to put limbo in heaven somehow. Limbo is kind of like in a heavenly location. So that's changed over time. Um, and probably depends on if you're older or newer Catholic. Um, you may even just reject limbo, and you can't, according to the current catechism. Of course, there are some old catechisms that say you should believe limbo. So, but I'm not Catholic, so I don't have to struggle with that. Um, so, the um, there's. Let's see what else have we got. Oh, since we're talking about Catholicism, I'll quote John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin wrote the following about this passage. He says it is presumption and sacrilege to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom he cherishes in his bosom and to shut the door and exclude as strangers those whom he does not wish to be forbidden to come to him. I think that's I think that's a nice quote. There's still more. There's actually a good deal more. So we're going to keep going. Here we go. What do we learn from John the Baptist? This is from Luke chapter 1 verse 41. John was still in the womb in the womb when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, I'm not going to make this an issue of whether he was saved or not. I'll come back to that in a second. Just notice what it says. John, uh, Luke 141, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And you're like, well, Mike, Elizabeth was filled, not John. Yeah, well, if you go back to Luke 115, the angel predicted that John also would be filled. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no, wi uh, no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now, the moment that happened is when Mary came and she's six months, Elizabeth's six months pregnant with John and Mary is pregnant with Jesus. And so, boom, like the, the Holy Spirit comes because John is going to be the one declaring the truth of Christ. So this is like a really significant one-time one event. I mean, it could have happened other times. God could do what he wants, but this isn't like a normal thing. Here's what's interesting. It doesn't necessarily mean John was saved in the womb, although I think if he died in the womb, he would be saved. But... The fact that he was filled with the Spirit implies that a little infant at six months in the womb, and back then probably wouldn't be viable. I don't think they'd be a viable baby if he'd been born right then. At that point in time, 
was capable of some kind of relationship with God, even though there was no rational thinking, no ability of speech, no knowledge of good and evil, no awareness, but God who can come inside of a person was able to have a relationship uh, with John in some sense. Even if you would, you would, I don't think he was sealed with the spirit. I think that happened after the death and resurrection of Christ. So the Holy Spirit was coming upon him for a ministry purpose, a calling, not necessarily salvation related. But even if, so even if it's not salvation, you still have a, a case here for a relationship with of, of God, having a relationship with an infant. And you'd be like, who can have a relationship with someone who doesn't understand anything? I'll be like, well, compared to God, none of us understands anything anyways. We're all just a bunch of morons. And he still loves us. So that's pretty cool. Um, okay, so that was at six months of gestation time. Um, let's see. My point there, infants are persons and relationship with God is possible in some sense. That I think is pretty cool because he was filled with the spirit and he jumped. All right, here's a couple more points that may add some stuff to my case. Uh, Job, in the book of Job, he has a preference. Now, this is not the strongest argument. I'm going to admit this ahead of time. This is why I put it towards the end. But in Job chapter 3, verse 11, Job talks about he wishes he would have just died when he was born. Uh, this is how bad Job's life got. Now, keep this in mind. Job never once attempted to kill himself. Or he's not even talking about committing suicide. This is like, man, I just wish, I, my life is so bad, I really wish I had just died when I was born. Look at what he says. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. So just be stillborn right there. Why did the knees receive me and why the breasts that I should suck? For now, I would have, been, I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. Look at what he says about what would have happened had he died at birth. It's preferable to his current situation because he would be resting. He would be sleeping. But look, he goes on. He describes it more. He would be at rest, what, with kings and with counselors of the earth who built, who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who were uh, filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage, which is discarded. I would not be as infants that never saw light there. What's there? Whatever he would be, if he died as a newborn or as an infant that never saw the light, where would he be? He would be where the wicked cease from raging and there the weary are at rest. Like the wicked don't, aren't necessarily even there. They're just not raging. There's no raging of the wicked. There's no one to combat him. And the weary, they're resting. The prisoners, they're at ease and they're together. They're, they're, they're prisoners, those who suffer, right? They're, they're relaxing. They're at peace from the troubles of the world and they're together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So Job's description of what would have happened in his hypothetical, I wish I had died as a newborn, it seems to imply a peaceful afterlife, right? Not just non-existence, not just some kind of limbo. In fact, a peaceful afterlife with those who are oppressed, those who are the slaves or the free, even kings, princes, like they all... The ones that are, in this case, I would say, saved, the, the righteous dead, they are all together. Now, let me add another piece to this. In Job 19, we see that Job thought he had a future resurrection. Job 19. This is actually one of the most profound passages in the book of Job. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. And here, we read this now with the fullness of Scripture revealed. We're like, dude, that's the second coming of Christ, you know. Um, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. 
So he's speaking that even after he dies, his skin is destroyed. He's going to see God with, with his eyes in a, new, in a new body. He's going to have a resurrected body. He's going to see God. He's going to be with God. That's his hope. Now, why do I bring that up? This is, this is I'll admit, this isn't the strongest argument, but I think it, there's some merit to it. It goes like this. If Job thought that dying as a newborn was preferable to the life he was currently living, it's not, an, and he was expecting a resurrection that he was longing for and hoping for, if that's true, it's not likely that he would think dying as a newborn was preferable if you were going to lose the resurrection as a result. He seemed to think it makes more sense if he thought that that future resurrection was secure at whatever age he died. That makes more sense. So this helps support the idea that the stillborn uh, have a pleasant afterlife and also have a future resurrection. Otherwise, how is that a better scenario, right? This temporary suffering and, and, and a glorious resurrection. Um, it's only better to die as a newborn in his scenario if you still get the resurrection without the suffering. That only makes it better. So he likely didn't think being stillborn threatened that resurrection or else it probably wouldn't be preferable to his current situation. Uh, let me give you another argument. This argument is from collateral damage. I'm just throwing all the kitchen sink at you now for you to think about. You don't have to agree with me on everything. This is my case. This is the argument from collateral damage. And it goes like this. Um, and I admit I'm on a limb. <laughs> Consider this conjecture. If kids don't deserve judgment, but they do suffer in event, events like the flood or the conquest of Canaan, um, you know, a problem seems to be obvious. That there's kids who aren't supposed to get judged, but yet they're dying and suffering and then... And then what? This seems like things don't get balanced out properly in, in the world. But that's made better by the idea that every one of those babies experiences eternal joy with God. Now, this is a pretty subjective argument, but I do think it's pretty profound because it completely flips your understanding of those events when you see that these babies have eternal life. Also, we have just another principle, another argument I'll throw at you real quick because we're going to be wrapping things up pretty soon. God's general desire for the salvation of all mankind should be weighed in. If you look at babies and you're going, well, they're not fit for hell, that's for sure. I'm, I don't really know about the David thing. Maybe I'm not really confident, Mike, but let me just throw this at you. Like, you know God's heart for the salvation of mankind. You know how much God desires and loves and cares for, for mankind and wants them to come and know him and wants to give them life. And that is what he wants and desires, right? Second Peter 3, 9, it says that God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, John 3, 16, God so loved the world. So if we just take God's posture of love towards people into consideration, that definitely weighs in favor of babies going to be in heaven. I think it's pretty strong, actually. Also, here's another argument. I've never heard someone give this argument. So forgive me if there's something completely wrong with what I'm saying that I'm just not picking up on. But see if you can follow my logic. And it's about creation. Okay. I'm not talking about babies. I'm talking about creation itself rocks and plants and animals and the sun and the earth and the moon and all this stuff it says for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of god for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly right creation doesn't have any will but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of god this is significant because what we're seeing here is um, in the resurrection of the saints is also going to be the renewal of all of creation. Creation, apart from decision-making of its own, was simply subjected to corruption and futility. And God in Christ is going to remake all the world. With our redemption, 
comes the renewal of all things. There is a blanket renewal that comes through Jesus to all of creation. Verse 22, it says, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers in the pains of childbirth together until now. This is a temporary, like, hardship in time. So, if I was to say that I'm having a hard time categorizing, you know, uh, babies in, in the whole scheme of the focus of, in Scripture on accountable beings, you know, humans who have that level of accountability, and I have a hard time figuring out where babies fit there, I can look on the other side and say, well, the exact opposite of humans as far as fallen things is all of creation, right? There, there's no accountability there. There's, it's just subject to futility because of the ultimate plan of God for salvation. But all of that will be brought into eternal glory. All of that will have the sin and the, the corruption taken away and will all be restored. And so here you've got like sort of two sandwich pieces, right? Here you have knowledgeable, free will, fully morally accountable beings who come to Christ and put their trust in Jesus. Here you've got creation that's just like no knowledge, no awareness, just subjected due to the fall. And somewhere in the middle, you kind of have babies, right? Like they have this potential knowledge. They don't really have it fully. But I'm just saying like if if this gets restored and they get restored, then I'm thinking <laughs> they all kit and caboodle, man. Like the whole sandwich goes up to heaven. That's all I'm saying. Um, that was the most clumsy way to say it and inaccurate. But you get my point. Sometimes saying things wrong is more clear than saying them right. So here's what I'm saying. Let me conclude. Let me conclude. Let me conclude this long, long study. Although not as long as some of my recent videos, <laughs> I admit. Um, there are a lot of good reasons we have to think that babies are going to be in heaven. Uh, they're not morally aware. Therefore, they're not morally accountable. One. Two. Here's, and I'm just going to throw a bunch at you. Not even all the ones I gave today. Two. There are specific examples of them not deserving judgment even when their parents do. That's pretty significant. Number three, the reasons for people being judged that we read about in Romans, that we read about in Revelation, those reasons do not apply to babies. They simply don't apply at all to these kids who have no knowledge of good and evil, no uh, knowledge about those issues, no actions that are morally culpable. Number four, David's response to losing his son seems to strongly support a heaven view or a view that, that we will have saved parents will have fellowship with their kids in the future if they're in Christ. Number five, without good reason to invent a new location other than heaven or hell, to just invent a new place for them to be, heaven seems to likely be their destination. I'm not just going to ad hoc make up new places. I don't, I don't, I'm not inclined to do that. Although I'll talk more about next week about those who do that and why they do it. Um, number six, God's desire to have all saved is consistent with the salvation of infants. So if you have any question about it, you should lean towards them being saved, given God's heart. Number seven, God restores all of creation, which has suffered unwillingly because of the fall. And I think it's consistent to say that if you have uncertainties about babies, you should apply that to them. I think that that makes sense. Now, a lot of a lot of issues come up now. Um, what will we do with uh, free will? Like, what about making a real decision? If every baby saved, like, are you saying that they don't make a choice or that they're forced by God to receive Christ? I'm going to deal with this next week. We're going to talk about a Calvinist response, a Molinist response, weird options, other options that people take on those issues. It'll be kind of technical, some of this stuff. Um, what about limbo and that, that other perspective? Um, we'll talk about that as well. How does this view that I'm presenting impact other areas of theology? Because it does touch on other issues. I'll talk a little bit about sin nature. But my conclusion here is where we start a week and end, you can just trust God's goodness and say, I don't know. But we have good reason to think that we will see them in heaven 
if we are in Christ, and that is the most important thing. You need Jesus to put your trust and faith in Christ. You are morally aware. You know the sin you've committed. You knew right from wrong and you chose wrong. And I encourage you to put your trust in Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again so that he could reunite you to himself and give you the joys of eternity. So repent and believe, man. That message never changes. All right, this is this has been the uh, Mark series, part 35, I think. And uh, thank you guys for joining. Sorry about the glitch. Um, I'll be editing the video to take out the big unnecessary stuff in the beginning. And if, if you've enjoyed this and it's ministered to you, I encourage you to just be blessed, man. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to give me nothing. Um, share the video with someone if you think it'll bless them or help them. My, my whole philosophy on making content online is make content that helps people. And that's it. <laughs> that's the whole philosophy. So, um, so yeah, God's good. I'm really blessed to get to have this, this ministry. And thank you for helping to make it possible, even just by watching. So thank you. Take care, guys. I'll see if I can figure out how to turn this thing off now because it's not my normal control.